Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, we have been, over these weeks, we've been talking about do you love God enough to think about Him? Do you love God enough to think about Him? Uh, that being the case, it may seem strange that I ask you first to think about some famous liars and some famous lies that you may have heard of. Uh, there are a bunch of them. There's the Trojan horse, talked about in the epic poem, The Iliad, a little bit, fleshed out in another great poem, The Aeneid. But the way the Trojan horse worked was like this. It was built by the Greeks, the Greek army. They, they put it together. They wheeled it up to the gates of Troy, the city that they were trying to take. Couldn't. They announced that it was a peace offering, and they turned around and walked away. The Trojans pulled it into the gate, and late that night when everybody was snoozing, that hollow horse was full of Greek soldiers. And they got out and they took the city. Famous lie. There have been a lot of famous lies down through history. Famous liars. Benedict Arnold, a name you may be familiar with, famous liar. He was a general and a good one on our side. In fact, he was the hero of the Battle of Saratoga. Pretty decisive battle in the revolution. From that battle, he was given an assignment to protect the fortress at West Point, that West Point. And he felt kind of slighted to be given that kind of a job, and it began to work on him. And General Arnold got pretty miffed over that to the point that he began to sell secrets to the British, the enemy. When his treachery was found out, that he was a big phony and a traitor and a liar, he ran away and he became a general on their side. Benedict Arnold famous liar. Einstein, we've heard the story. How many have heard the story, Einstein failed math? Have you ever heard that? Not true. In fact, when Einstein would be asked by, it by a reporter, and hundreds of them did, oh, we heard you failed math. He would always laugh graciously and explain that when he was a young, by the time he was a young teen, that he had mastered the most difficult kind of calculus and in fact, he had discovered a proof that nobody else had ever discovered from the famous Pythagorean theorem. He had done it all on his own. Hardly a failure at math. When Darwin came up with the theory of evolution, the idea of natural selection and survival of the fittest describes why we are the way we are and why the world's the way it is, people immediately began to look for what they called the missing link. There had to be something between animals and people, and we can't quite see the connector, and they called this missing thing the missing link. And so they began looking, and they felt that they had found it with the discovery of what they called the Piltdown Man. Some bones and fragments that they found in an old swamp. And they pieced them all together and said, here is our missing link. Not quite human, not quite animal. It's the link between. The only problem with the Piltdown Man was 
decades after they had discovered him, they did analysis on him that they didn't have available in 1910 and discovered that the skull of the missing link was only 600 years old and that the jawbone, in fact, was the jawbone of an orangutan. And somebody had filed down the teeth and stained them to make it look older, make it fit. So there was a great hoax, a famous lie. But there there have been many more than that. The Titanic, it's unsinkable. Well, we know how that turned out. You've heard of George Costanza from Seinfeld? Great liar. In fact, it's Costanza that said, it's not a lie if you believe it's true. But a great liar nonetheless. And then, of course, there's Pinocchio. They're great lies, great liars. And you've probably heard some. We're going we're gonna to think about the biggest liar in the Bible today, a fellow that I call Jacob the liar. And you may want to turn to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, because we're using Genesis as a as a template to talk about ways to think about God. And Jacob the liar is going to help us do that today. Now, Jacob is the grandson of the great Abraham, Father Abraham. And Abraham is huge. Abraham is a very big deal in Scripture and in history. He is a founder. All three great world religions look back at Father Abraham as the founder He is a pioneer in every sense of the word. He's been described as the very first believer. He's the very first one to suffer for his belief. He's the first to walk away from his culture, his society, to form a minority of one. His promised son that follows him, that he waits a long time for, Isaac. Next to Father Abraham, Isaac seems to fade. Because Abraham is so big, he's larger than life. But Isaac, his son, is classic second generation. He's the connecting tissue between Abraham's time and the rest of his family's history, which is what we call the Bible. (laughs) He's the connector between all of that. He's a stabilizer, his son Isaac is. He made it a business to go around rebuilding the altars and redigging the wells that his father had built and dug that got torn down and filled in. He would rebuild the altars and redig the wells. But outside of setting down roots for another generation in the land of promise, he doesn't do anything remarkable. He's not an active participant. And as I said, he fades next to his father Abraham. And in all the stories about Isaac, he's always connected to somebody else. He's not well-defined, but he's somebody else's son. He's somebody else's heir. He's somebody else's husband. In his case, he's a husband of a very remarkable woman. He's the father of somebody more important. He has almost no personality of his own that we can see. And Isaac seems to age prematurely. In fact, he is at his most significant role when he is old and blind. Literally old and blind and figuratively blind. And then Isaac just seems to fade out of the picture. 
You know, Isaac is part of what is known as a cycle. In the book of beginnings, Genesis, and you want to turn to Genesis 27. But in the book of beginnings, there's the Abraham cycle. There's the Isaac cycle. There will be the Jacob cycle and the Joseph cycle. But in the Isaac cycle, the true major figure is not Isaac, but his wife, Rebekah. When we first meet her, when she is very young and single, she is a very decisive person. She is a very strong, take-charge person. Even in a culture that is male-dominated, she is a force to be reckoned with. She is the major figure in the Isaac story, really. And, and it's to her, interestingly, and not Isaac, that God reveals his plan. Take a look in chapter 25. Verse 23, I'll see, show you what I mean. She is now married to Isaac, but she's the dominant figure. She is now pregnant with twins, and these twins within her, it seems like there's a war going on. She can feel the struggle inside her body between her two babies, and she says to the Lord, why is it this way? And in verse 23 of Genesis 25, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Wow. No wonder she's got problems. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And here's the catch. The older shall serve the younger. And that's pretty much the way it tumbles out. She has these two boys. Jacob and Esau, they're forming within her, and even as they form, they seem to be in conflict. There seems to be a great struggle. And she remembers what God tells her, this young mother, when she's still carrying the boys. She remembers long after they've grown, and now they're young adults, she remembers that promise that the younger would be in charge of the older completely out of the natural order. And, and she puts things in motion to see that that prophecy takes place exactly the way she was told it, to see that her younger son has advantage over the older. And she is the one, Rebecca, who bridges the gap between Abraham's dream of a great nation that he never sees and the reality of the people that will be called Israel. So she sets the stage this remarkable Rebecca does, she sets the stage not for a pale Isaac, but for another larger-than-life figure, one of her twins, who will come on the stage full dazzling color, and in fact, he will dress his kids in blazing colors. The younger of the twins, Jacob the liar. Jacob the liar. As I said, he's a twin. He's slightly younger when birthday comes, he comes out second. Brother Esau makes his appearance first. But Jacob is right behind him. And he comes out holding on to his slightly older brother's foot. Like he's trying to pull him backward to gain advantage even then. He's trying to get ahead even then. He's trying to erase his younger status and even from birth, he tries to become the leader. 
Now that struggle between these two boys, it will be remembered and the promise will be remembered that that younger will be in charge of the older. He will be the prominent one. And Rebecca will use that as the reason for hatching a great deception that younger son, Jacob the liar, gladly goes along with. If you want to follow along the story, it's in chapter 27. What's already happened up to this point is the older brother has made a tactical error. Esau was out hunting, and he got skunked. He didn't catch anything. And he comes back home, and he is beyond hungry. He's crazy with hunger. And Jacob, who has stayed home, he has been in the kitchen cooking, and he's cooked up a mess of beans, red beans. And when Esau sees those, he says, let me have all those beans in that pot. And Jacob says, I'll do it if you sell me your birthright. All of the privileges that come with being the oldest, even by just a couple minutes oldest, he had the advantage. Sell me your birthright. And with that birthright would go the promise. And the promise involved through the one who held the promise. A great nation would come that would be blessed. And eventually there would be a son in that great nation who would rise to be the Savior of the whole world. That was part of the birthright. And stupid Esau, as hungry as he was, he said, deal, and they shook on it. And he gave up his birthright for a bowl full of red beans. And from that day on, Jacob teasingly called him Edom, which means red. And he never let him forget, you sold your birthright to me for a bunch of beans. Tactical error on Esau's part. But sometime later, the day comes when Father Isaac is going to seal the deal. He doesn't know about that sale. And he calls in Esau as the oldest, and he says, I don't know. I'm blind. I'm old. I may die any minute. I think it's time I give you the blessing that will confer all the promises on you. But, but what I want you to do is make it a special occasion. I love the way you, you take that deer meat and the way you marinate it and cook it. I want you to make me some of that so that this will be a day to remember on both our parts. And so Esau sets off with his weapons and he goes hunting for the deer to please his father and get the blessing. But while he's away... His younger brother is still at home, and Rebecca remembering. She sees that now the blessing is going to be conferred, and she's got to take charge. Because she remembers that the younger has got to be the leader, not the older. And she doesn't want Esau to get the blessing, so she goes to Jacob with a fairly elaborate scheme. I want you to go and pick out the best of our lambs. And I, I want you to bring it here, and we're going to butcher it, and we're going to prepare it, and we know the secret spices. We're going to make it taste like that venison. We're going to make it taste like that deer meat that Father Isaac loves. He won't know any difference because he's old and he's blind. 
And then you're going to go in and you're going to pretend you're Esau and you're going to get the blessing. Jacob says only one problem with that. I'm smooth and my brother is a hairy rascal. But she's ahead of him on that too. And when the meal is prepared, they tie some of the wool from the lamb on the back of his neck and on his forearms. So he'll feel like his brother. And she dresses him in some of Isaac's stinky clothes. And he takes the meal in before his father. And even though his father is old and feeble and blind at this point, he senses something's not right. And he asks, who are you? And he says, first lie, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And I've done exactly what you told me to do. Get up, please sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Now he's lied twice. He's lied twice at this point. And Isaac says to him, how is it that you've caught this animal so quickly? <laughs> and you prepared it so quickly. And another lie, because God gave me good luck. And Isaac now says, please, come close. I want to make sure it's you. And he puts his hand on the back and he feels the hairiness and on the arms that confirm it. He's still a little bit confused. He says, your voice sounds more like Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. But he believed it was Esau. He's got to ask one more time, are you really Esau? He said, I am. Then bring me the food. And he ate it, and he was satisfied, and probably a little wine on top of that helped him to be persuaded even more. He said, then please come close and kiss me, my son. And he begins the ritual of the blessing. Do you realize, parents and grandparents, that you can confer a blessing on your children too? It doesn't have to be as elaborate as this. And it certainly doesn't have to involve deception. But just by any day, every day, touching your child, you can confer a blessing. And that's what Isaac does. He says in verse 27, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. And so what he's able to smell is the deciding factor in this little deception. Now, may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wine. And we know from later on that Jacob becomes an incredibly prosperous person. May people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. And when he says those final words... He is adding a blessing that was once given by God himself to Father Abraham. And it's over. Now when Esau gets home, he's enraged at what he finds took place. And Isaac is heartbroken that he's been lied to. But nothing can be undone. It's irrevocable at that point. 
So there are a couple of ugly incidents. The taking of the birthright for beans and this deception of his father for the blessing. There are a couple of ugly incidents there that involve Jacob. And you see why I call him Jacob the liar. Now Rebecca is chief engineer in so much of this because she can tell that if Esau gets the blessing, everything would be lost. If the promise is transferred to him, that the promised people will likely, under his supervision, become a small, insignificant bunch of people scraping around the deserts of Saudi Arabia. And the promise, the great promise of land and of future and, and of a deliverer that would one day come, the promise that goes all the way back to the first parents that eventually one in your line will crush the head of Satan and set people free, that all of that, Rebecca believes, will be lost if it's gone to Esau because he despises all of that. He has no value for any of that. The promise and Israel would become just a footnote in history. But Jacob is shrewd enough to see what Rebecca sees, and he gladly lies to get what he appreciates and Esau cannot appreciate. You know, like everybody you know, like you and like me, Jacob is a mixed bag. He will go on from this point to do some incredible things and live an incredible life. He'll become the father of the Jewish nation, literally the father because he'll have 12 sons. He, he will marry into a family and become indebted to a father-in-law who is a bigger liar and cheat than even he is. So he's going to get his own medicine in spades. The, the relationship with that father-in-law will be built on lies and counter lies and sneakiness. And along the way, he will fall madly in love. It will be a lifelong love. But that too, he'll be cheated in that too. He'll get a new name, Israel, which will become the name for his people. He'll get to know God in ways that nobody else has ever known God. He will actually fight with God, MMA-style hand-to-hand combat with God one night. It will last all night, and it will leave him disabled and disfigured for life so that he never forgets who's in charge. But this eventual father of the faithful, who will be mentioned in a billion prayers over the years when people pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this point, for all that he will be, at this point, he is as big a liar and cheat and con man as you never want to meet. Jacob the liar. His name in Hebrew, Yaakov, it can playfully mean the trickster, the cheat. But in a malevolent vein, it can mean what it means here, the liar. He's a liar. And yet God uses this liar with his lying ways, and he uses his brother that the book of Hebrews describes, describes Esau as morally bankrupt and godless, That's why he couldn't receive the promise. And and Esau's choice of a marriage partner and many other things 
will gall and grieve his parents to their grave. So at this point, neither of these boys is any good, and they're not going to be any good for a long time. But God is still in the thick of this family chaos. And he's accomplishing his will for the benefit of every human being that will ever live. You, you, you can't make these stories up. I mean, they're too involved. They're too intricate. They're too interconnected. You can't make this stuff up, how God uses people like this. But there are no pure people, right? So don't expect to find them in the Bible. But Jacob the liar, for all of his faults, can teach us how to think about God. He teaches us to learn to value valuable things. Learn to value valuable things. He saw value in the birthright and the blessing that his brother did not see. He valued what God values. He went about it in the wrong way, but his values were right. He valued what God values. Do you? Let me ask you this. Ask yourself, what do you place value in? Somebody has said you can tell what we value by looking at two things in two places. Look in your calendar and look in your checkbook. Look in how you spend the time that we call disposable time. There's some of our time. It's committed. But what about our own time? How do you spend it? And how do you spend disposable income? Money that doesn't have to go to bills, what do you do with it? The Bible says, Jesus speaking, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now that becomes a crystal clear thermometer of your spiritual temperature when you flip that verse. And you think of it this way. Think of it saying this. Look at where your heart is focused. Look at where your heart is focused. That's your treasure that is most valuable to you. And you see then why Jesus said his best piece of advice, seek my kingdom where I'm in charge, my values, seek my kingdom first. Nothing good will be denied if we do that. He, he won't hold back on blessing family or friends or good music or good food or happiness or achievement. Just get the order right. God first. So do you value God? If you do, then you'll read what he has to say. You want to know what he says about things. You will talk with Father, Son, and Spirit. We call it prayer. You, you, you will follow Jesus, you see? You'll follow Jesus. You'll take him up on his invitation to take his yoke on you and learn from him. He says, if you really value what I value, what I'm about, then you'll take these things on you. And by the way, he says, I'm meek and lowly of heart, so don't be afraid of me. Learn to value valuable things. And the other thing the liar teaches us is this. Make an effort to get the things that God values. Now for this guy, he had quite a toolbox. The book of Proverbs says, in all you're getting, get wisdom. We do an awful lot of getting. 
we should make every effort to get the things that God values. Now, this guy, dishonesty was his tool of choice. Lies spouted out of him easier than the truth. That was his tool of choice. But Jacob went to the extreme to acquire what was truly valuable. It cost him a lot to get that birthright and get that blessing. It cost him an awful lot. If he had just waited, think about it, he would have gotten it all anyway. Remember the prophecy when he's still inside of mama? He was going to be first anyway. He was going to get it all anyway. If he had just waited, he, wouldn't have got, he would have gotten it all. So all of this lying and conniving and scheming and the grief it caused and the eruption in his family and the generations of dysfunction, and it began when he got the blessing and Esau came home and exploded and he had to run to a far country to save his dirty neck. That all could have been avoided and the generations of family dysfunction, none of it necessary. Remember that promise. He was to be the leader. But all his scheming for the next 20 years tells you that he went to enormous effort to get the valuable thing, the thing God values. Make an effort. Make a supreme effort to get the things that God values. The Bible says it this way, store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy, where, where your treasures will not be subject to devaluing or deterioration or inflation or theft. In other words, you invest in what God says is important. Invest your time, invest your money, invest your talents, your prayers. Bend it all in God's direction and you will never lose it. Think about it. That's why we dedicate babies, children. I don't know how many people see it that way, but God takes it seriously. God says, you have given me your child. Smart move. Because you will never lose that precious child if you give it to Christ. See? Invest in following Jesus. Whatever it costs of your weekend or your Wednesday or your time in a Thrive group or ministry involvement to feed the poor or, or, or teaching children or whatever else you might do with that 10% of your income. Invest it in Him. A few years ago, I was with an older friend who was dying. He knew it. We knew it. I visited him at his home, and I told him, I said, Jim, you know that everything you did for God, it's going to pay off. It was good. And that God is going to take care of you. And he said scary words to me. He said, I hope so. My heart sank when he said that. I hope so. But if you value what God values, it doesn't have to be in the I hope so department. And there are a hundred ways that you can measure if you really are valuing what God loves and what God values. You, you can look in your giving. You can look in your serving, even in your thinking. You're not thinking all the time on the news junk. You're thinking about God. 
You're thinking about his word, things that are good and pure and lovely. You're thinking about how great God is. You're letting these songs that we sing tumble through your brain throughout the day. You're memorizing scripture. You're thinking about God and not the news junk of the day that's dictated to us. But you're thinking about whatever is good and pure and lovely. I was about 10 and I was outside in our backyard, and I was talking to my friends and my brothers, and I said a dirty word, and my mom overheard it. Window was open. She overheard it. She was on me fast. And she chased me around, got into the front yard. We had a little, we lived in an inner city of Indianapolis, and we had a little postage stamp front yard, about as big as from me to the front row there, and she tackled me in that front yard with neighbors watching, and she washed my mouth out with a toilet bowl brush. And she announced to the neighbors, who were pretty amused, that she would not have in her hand what I had in my mouth. And that's why she had used the toilet bowl brush. I would not have in my hand what you had in your mouth. She could be funny that way. Later on, when it was all cooled down, she came to me and she said, you know, <clears throat> after I had brushed my teeth 200 times and probably used a whole tube of paste, she came and she said, you know, your mouth and your mind we're made for better things than that. The world has an agenda for us, but our minds were made for better things, amen? So let our minds be filled with the things of God, not the things that the world wants to fill it with. But make an effort to get the things that God values. And finally, Jacob tells us, listen, just listen. This part of Jacob's story it all seems so tragic. There's the breakup of his family, which is not large at this point. And because he is in another country and the old people are here, there's so much of life that is missed out for these grandparents. They will not see their grandchildren. The pattern cheating he continues to do that just to stay ahead. He will run from messes that alienate another side of the family. There will be jealousies. Uh, the sons of Jacob, and he will have a bunch of them, will all become liars and cheaters and keep secrets from him that will break his heart. It's tragic because it's so unnecessary. In fact, that's why he's sent away and out of the country following the blessing that he steals because his brother is enraged and threatens to kill him as soon as it's convenient. So to avoid at least some grief in the short term, Jacob is sent away because of the rage of his brother. But it's not as is popularly told he is sent away by his mother. He's actually sent away by his father. 
Look in verse 28, chapter 28. Verse 5, it says very clearly, Then Isaac sent Jacob away. He, he got over the heartbreak. Isaac now is at peace with the idea that Jacob will be the blessed one. And so he tells him, it might be a good idea because of the anger of your brother, but also I don't want you to make your brother's mistake. I don't want you to find a wife here. I want you to find a wife among our people back in the old country, the land between the rivers. Go back there. Find your wife back there. Uh, unlike Esau, that's the immediate reason, but it's not the only one. But Isaac now has made peace with the mix-up. The point is that for once, Jacob listens to his old blind father that he had fooled. Now there is a father who is not at all blind or feeble, who says to us, I know the plans that I have for you, and they are good. Jesus says his sheep know his voice and will listen to his voice alone. And there is a God who invites us into what the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoy within himself and see that the life with God, walking with Jesus, being a follower, that's what Abraham knew. You become a friend of God when you walk with Jesus. There's much more to come, but you start by just becoming his friend and walking with him. There are a lot of voices that are calling to us. There are a lot of voices out there. But listen to what God is trying to say. You're included in what God is saying. So don't run. Get closer. God says, I want you to get closer. Let's talk. Let's start a conversation like Abraham's that will never end. And in that, there is love and there is joy and there is peace. And Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't, don't love the world because the world is passing away anyway. It's not permanent. But the things of God, what God values, those things are eternal. So I want to leave you with one verse. 2 Corinthians 4.18. I want you to take a look at what the Word says there. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, transient. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Jacob, for all his faults, Jacob listened. Listen to what God is telling you. During this season of fasting and prayer, get alone this week with God. Jesus tells a story about a man who stumbles along and he finds a treasure buried in a field. He covers it up because it's not his and the field's not his. But he goes straight to the owner and he buys it at great cost to get that treasure. He lays another parable right along next to it. We call the pearl of great price. It's a similar story 
But this time a man discovers a pearl of incredible value. And it seems that he's the only one who knows the true value. And so he gives everything he's got to obtain that valuable pearl. The pearl of great price. Now the difference between those two stories is this. That we're the ones who stumble along and find the treasure in a field that is Christ. And we should give everything we can to gain that treasure. But the pearl of great price, that's you. You're the pearl of great price that Jesus gives everything for. That he might have you. So imitate Jesus. Value the things that God values. Listen to what he's saying. The great apostle Paul, he he cried out at one point, Oh, that I may know Christ. I just want to know him. I'll give anything to know him. Everything he said next to that one thing is lost to me. One of the great building wonders of the world is a place called the Milan Cathedral in Milan, Italy. They say it's the fourth or fifth largest cathedral in the world. It's massive. It took 600 years to build the thing, and it's still really not finished. But there are a number of gates there, and over one of the gates to get into the cathedral, carved in the stone, it says, Things that please, things that please are temporary. Over another gate, it says things that disturb are temporary. But over the main gate as you go in it, carved above, it says eternal are the important things. Eternal are the important things. Value what God values. Not what the world values. Not the cause of the day or the crisis of the day. Certainly not the politics or the fad of the hour. But invest your life in eternal things. Think about eternal things. Value. You see what God values. Somebody has said, then any old dead fish will follow the current. But it takes a live fish to swim against it. Right? Our culture may be going one way. It doesn't matter. You're a living thing. Swim against that. Value what God values. Not what everybody else values. Value what God values. Time in His Word. Time in prayer. Time involved in reaching somebody else for Christ. Time with the poor. Time in thinking about God. Time in giving. Value what God values. I want you to stand with me. As we close our time together, we have another week in front of us. Part of that week has already been claimed. That's just the way we live. Right? Work has claimed a chunk of it. Other people have claimed another chunk of it. But there is a part of life that is yours to spend. Let's value the things that God values.
You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.